Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, Senior Pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at that portion of Scripture where Jesus truly was rejected. You know, we, we have uh, been walking through the book of Matthew. We've been uh, on this journey to see Matthew's telling of Jesus' life. And just like Luke and just like Mark and like, just like John, Matthew had a unique uh, perspective on Jesus, a, a unique purpose in telling Jesus' life. I think sometimes we look at it and it's like, you know, why are there four tellings of Jesus' life? Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason is, is because each one of them presented Jesus from a little different angle, a different perspective. And so what we've been doing for really since September is analyzing Jesus' life from the perspective that Matthew told us. And what Matthew was doing was he was presenting Jesus, he was writing particularly to Jewish believers. He was writing to Jewish believers to ensure them and to to remind them and explain to them all the intricacies of how Jesus really and truly was their Messiah. And then he's also answering this question of what happened to his kingdom? Because John the Baptist before him and then Jesus began by saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's right here. And so here are these Jewish believers 30 years after Jesus had died and rose and then went back to heaven, and they're saying, where's the kingdom? What's up with the kingdom? Was Jesus really the Messiah? I mean, does, you know, explain that to me. And that's what Matthew's doing. He's trying to explain to these Jewish believers that Jesus really was the king, he really was the Messiah, And here's the proper perspective on his kingdom. And basically his point was, you know, when Jesus came and offered the kingdom, and and today, as I said, you know, today's Palm Sunday. Today's the day he, he officially presented that kingdom to them. He he came into Jerusalem riding on that colt, being received by the crowds. They were all saying, Hosanna, save us, save us, you're the answer. Jesus wasn't telling them to be quiet. In fact, the Pharisees said, listen, do you know what they're saying about you? And Jesus said, yes, and if they didn't say it, even the rocks would cry out and say it. Because today, I am officially offering myself as the king of the kingdom. And what did, the, what did the Pharisees do? What did the religious leaders do? What did the decision makers do? They rejected him. They rejected him. They'd already in their heads said, okay, this guy, everything he does, he does it in the spirit and power of Satan. 
We don't want anything to do with him. And they'd been trying to find a politically correct way to get him off the stage. They couldn't do it. And it's almost like the whole events of today, Palm Sunday, Jesus was, was forcing their hands. You've got to make a decision about me. You've got to make a public decision about me. And what that public decision about was, was we're rejecting him, and in fact, we're going to execute him. That's what the crucifixion was all about. And Matthew wanted us to see that and how here was this valid offer of the kingdom, and yet they rejected it. So what I want you to do is, is look at Matthew 27, and we're going to look at, at Matthew's unique telling of that story because Mark tells it, Luke tells it, John tells it, but like I said, they all are telling it from a little bit different perspective because they've got different purposes, but Matthew's purpose was he wanted us to fully understand what it was that happened to Jesus as the king and the kingdom and what's going to happen. What can we learn from just studying this rejection, this crucifixion account? Now, what I'm going to do today is, is we're just going to kind of walk through it. This, today is going to be really more of a, a meditation, if you will, where we're just going to meditate on the scriptures here and and. And, and I want to make some observations, and uh, hopefully I won't have to bend over and get my notes, but if I do, I will. But uh, what, what we're going to see is, is some observations from this passage of Scripture. But let's start in uh, chapter 27, verse 27. Then the soldiers, so we're fast-forwarding. Okay, Jesus came in on that Sunday, and then throughout the week, things got worse and worse and worse, and then finally, Thursday night, he was arrested. He was tried throughout the night, and then early Friday morning. So we're now at, at what we call Good Friday. Early Friday morning. Here's what happened. Verse 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium. It was a gathering place, a kind of part of the fortress that was uh, Pilate's uh, castle, just, just there in Jerusalem, part of the city, but, but walled off from the city. And they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Verse 28, and they stripped him. And they put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand. And they knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, now think about this. Who is this that is doing it? These are the Roman soldiers. These are Gentiles. These, these are Roman soldiers that have been sent to Jerusalem to kind of keep the peace. These Jews were just, you know, always stirring up all kinds of, of issues. And here it is in the, inside the Roman fortress, the Roman uh, military uh, building there. And out of the public eye, 
out of uh, the, 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 the sight of, of the rulers or even the religious rulers, these Roman soldiers, before they even got to him, they are starting to mock him and mock him. They, they strip him. They put a, a red robe on him. Someone, someone had found like a thorn bush and wove it into a crown stuck it on his head. You can imagine the pain that that would have felt, that he would have felt from that. And then they took a little reed, just a little stick, almost maybe like a little bamboo stick. Here, this will be your scepter. This, this is how you'll rule with a rod of iron. And they stuck it in his hand. And then, and then they all came up and they, in a mocking way, they bowed down before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. There wasn't a Jew in the room. But these, you know, you, you can be their, their king. I mean, just humiliating him. And then look at verse 30, and they spat on him. And then they took that reed, that reed that was supposed to be his little scepter, and they began to beat him with it on the head. And after they'd mocked him, they took his robe off and they put his garments back on him and then they led him away to crucify him. So here, who knows how long it lasted, 15, 20, 30 minutes. They're, they're ready to make this parade off to a place called Golgotha or Calvary in the Latin. And, and it's this execution place that is outside the city, but they're inside of the military installation. And while they're waiting for the commander, the, the centurion who was over the execution that day, for, waiting for him to say, okay, get your guy and we're heading out. This is what they did to him. They mocked him, they beat him, they spat on him. They made all sorts of fun of him. And then finally it was time to go. Verse 32, as they were coming out, they found a certain Cyrenian named Simon. And this man, they, they pressed him into service to bear the cross. One of the other gospel writers gives us a little bit more information. Jesus, by this time, has been, has been so beaten, so exhausted, so spent physically, he just, there was no way for him to carry that huge cross on his back, dragging it that long way out to Golgotha. Perhaps like the movies show, he, he continually collapsed or somehow was not able to keep up. And so finally they just, you know, found someone in the crowd and they grabbed him and they made him carry that cross, which is something that was totally in their prerogative. I mean, they were the Romans. They were the, they were the, the, the people in charge. Interestingly, this man's sons evidently came to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Perhaps this man himself did. They're referred to in the last chapter of Romans. Interesting story. But this, this man named Simon helps Jesus get the cross all the way there. Then look at verse 33. And if you've, got, if you've got your Bible open and you've got a paper Bible, you can kind of see this. Or if you get wide enough on your phone, if you're using this, here's the first observation I want you to notice. 
There are tons of Old Testament allusions in Matthew's account. You see this? Look at, look at verse 34. They gave him wine to drink mingled with gall. Look at verse 35. They divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. That's right out of Psalm 22. Look at... Uh, down in verse 39, and those who were passing by were hurling insults, wagging their heads. That's another quote out of Psalm 22. Look at verse 43. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. All of these are, are Old Testament allusions or quotes or, or predictions of how it would be for the Messiah when he finally got to that time of rejection. And here's what I want you to recognize. Here's the first observation. The first thing you got to remember, even though it looks from our perspective like, whoa, things went horribly wrong. In reality, from God's perspective, this was always plan A. Jesus always had an appointment with the cross. You know, sometimes we like to sit and, and think, okay, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He comes in, he presents himself as king. What if they'd have accepted him? What if they'd have said, come right in, here's the throne. What can we do to serve you? I mean, has that ever happened in the history of mankind when, God, when mankind, sinful mankind says, God, what can we do to serve you? I mean, no. What if it had happened? We think that's plan A. That's, that's what God was intending. Didn't he know they were going to reject him? Didn't he know this is how they were going to treat him? Didn't he know that, that sinful man didn't want anything to do with a holy God? Absolutely. This was always going to be plan A. So, so let's read what plan A was supposed to be. Verse 33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which, which means place of the skull, because it, it was kind of a rock formation that looked like a skull if you had a good imagination and you were standing far, enough, far off enough. They gave him wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it, probably because this was, was something that was given to him to just deaden the pain. And it's like when Jesus tasted it and realized this is not it, anything he wanted, he refused to drink it. And when they, verse 35, and when they crucified him, they divided up his garments, and among them, they, among themselves, casting the lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. So it's like here in just a few verses, we've, we've heard about how he gets to the place of, uh, of, uh, of execution, this place they called Golgotha because of uh, how it looked. And uh, we know from the rest of the story, he's there with two other criminals that are going to be executed. They lay him down on that cross, and, and they, they nailed nails through his hands and nails through his feet. And then in, in kind of a, a sophisticated way, they get him upright and hang him down on that cross. And basically what he is doing, and they're having, if you've seen it in, in pictures or whatever, they had to tie ropes around his wrist to hang it because otherwise his hands would have easily torn through the nails 
and there he hung. And below his feet, there was, they, on, on these Roman crosses, they would put a little shelf. Because you see, the, the typical person that was crucified didn't die because they put nails through his hands or his feet. They didn't die because maybe eventually he got stoned or uh, got stabbed. He died from asphyxiation. He, 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 he couldn't breathe. He, excuse me, not asphyxiation, but suffocation. Because the way you would have to breathe is you would, you would through your feet that are pierced with nails, you'd have to raise up to gain enough space in your lungs to take in the air and then breathe. And, and the whole process was this kind of a thing and, and going on. And you can imagine after hours, even the strongest of an individual finally was just so totally spent, they just hung there. They didn't have the energy to raise himself up to breathe again. And that's what's going on. They, they, they get Jesus finally into that position. And who knows, it takes 10, 15 minutes. Get him upright. Get the other two guys upright. They take care of what are we going to do with his clothes. And they divide them. They cast lots. Okay, you get it this time. Maybe I'll get it next time. And then did you see it there? Verse 36, they just sat down just to watch, you know, and they know we're here for a couple hours, maybe longer. In verse 37, and they put above his head this charge that said, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. From one of the other Gospels, we find out that the, the Jewish officials there didn't like that wording. Please say this is Jesus who says he's the king of the Jews. But it's like Pilate's order was prophetic and accurate. This guy really is the king of the Jews, even though the Jews still don't want to claim him. Verse 38, and at that time two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you really are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priest, along with the scribes and the elders, they were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we shall believe in him. I mean, again, just filled with sarcasm and mockery. He trusts in God. Let God take care of him. And even the robbers, verse 44, also were, who were being crucified with him were casting the same kinds of insults. You know, the first observation I wanted you to see is just how this really and truly was plan A. And all these Old Testament allusions speak to it. It's like this was, this was God's intention for him to be crucified. What he is accomplishing there on that Friday morning and afternoon 
is exactly what God wanted him to accomplish. And the thing I wanted you to see, the second thing, the second observation is everyone is rejecting him. Did you notice that? I mean, the people that are passing by. That's in verse uh, 40. Or verse 39, those who were passing by were hurling abuse. I mean, not far evidently from, from this place of execution is a, a road out of town. You know, and by now it's, uh, you know, some of the people already had done their Passover duty. The out-of-towners had already observed Passover, so they're, they're heading home. And so people are leaving town and they're seeing this Jesus that had caused such a stir and, oh, he's, he's getting executed. He's getting what he deserved. And even they are yelling at him. Look at verse uh, uh, 41. It's like you got everyone from, from those people that are just tourists on their way out of town all the way to the chief priest and the scribes and the elders mocking him. Everyone is rejecting him. Everyone is saying, we don't want anything to do with you. We don't want your kingdom. We don't want anything about you. We don't want to hear what you have to say. We don't want to hear what you have to think. But look where this story goes. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, that would basically be noon, the way they reckon time. From the sixth hour... Darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. Ninth hour would be about three in the afternoon. And then at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Now, let me just make a couple comments here. The Bible you know, from the other accounts, tells us that at least seven times Jesus spoke. And Mark and Luke and John tell us about those other six things that Jesus said from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Hey, John, take my mother home. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Things like that. Matthew only includes one comment. He alludes to the fact that Jesus said other things, but, but he didn't quote them. Which all of that leads me to think that in Matthew's telling of this story, this was the most important to his argument, to his case, to his, his unique perspective. It comes right out of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Everyone else had rejected Jesus. And here's the really important point. Even the Father, God the Father, had rejected Jesus. Now, just go back to the passage here, and then I'll elaborate some more on it. Some of those, verse 47, it just kind of tells you a little bit about those others. Okay, it, the Eli, Eli, Lama, Shabbatani, that's Hebrew. But look at this. Now, every good Jewish person is supposed to know Hebrew. Remember that? Uh, 
I remember coaching soccer with a guy who happened to be Jewish and just sitting and talking to him. This guy was teaching his daughters Hebrew because he wanted his little 10-year-olds and 12-year-old to understand and know and be able to read Hebrew. A good Jew, even today, knows Hebrew. Think about it. You've got the chief priests, you've got the, the elders, the scribes, all these good Jewish folks standing around Jesus, watching him die. But because their primary language was Aramaic, they make one of the biggest blunders you've ever seen. Some of those standing there were saying, Eli, Eli, oh, he must be calling for Elijah. Elijah has nothing to do with it. It's just kind of coincidental. The it, it sounds like it. What does Eli mean? My God, my God. They're saying he must be calling out for Elijah. They didn't even recognize one of the most important Psalms in all the Bible, Psalm 22. It just shows you how secularized these people were. That, that leads us to understand a little bit better just why they were so adamant in their rejection of him. He said, let's just sit here and see if Elijah shows up. This could be a great show. But then look at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and then he yielded up his spirit. And again, we didn't, Matthew doesn't tell us what he said. From the other Gospels, we know what it was he said. What is it that he said? It is finished. It is finished. And the question we have to ask is, what was finished? And the answer is, our salvation. He's done all the work. He's purchased it. He's done what was necessary for our salvation. Because after that, he died. He finished the work, and he died. He gave up his spirit. What does that point back to? How did he finish the work? It's that quote. The one quote of all the seven that Jesus said from the cross that the other gospel writers include, but the only one that Matthew included because he wanted to put a spotlight on it and he didn't want anything else to clutter the issue. And that was Jesus endured the penalty for our sin. And what is the penalty for our sin? What, what are the consequences of our sin? It's not just physical death. It's kind of like what we talked about last week. It's spiritual death. It is that, phys that spiritual separation from the Father. When the Apostle Paul is explaining it, a very, very important verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And when Jesus Christ became sin, when he took on all the sins of all humanity, God, forsook him. That's when Jesus spiritually died, and he physically died 
as indication and proof that he had spiritually died. Just like our physical death is proof that we have been, had been spiritually dead. When a baby is born, that baby immediately begins to die. It might take 93 and a half years, but that person is on a trajectory of death. Why? Because they are spirit-born, spiritually dead, separated from God. They've inherited the sin of Adam. They have been forsaken by God. There is a, 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 a gap a breach in the relationship. And what Matthew, is, as he tells this, this very familiar story, I'm sure that his, his original readers, when they read this the first time, it wasn't like, oh, I thought he drowned. Oh, I thought he was stoned. Oh, I, I didn't know that he died on the cross. They all knew it. I mean, it was the best-known story among early believers. But Matthew's unique perspective on it was he wanted all of us to recognize and put this huge spotlight on the fact that he died spiritually. He endured what I needed to endure, what you needed to endure because we are sin, because we are sinners. And he took our penalty and endured it and thus satisfied the Father. Now, here's what gets really cool. Matthew's the only one that includes some of these details. Look at verse 51. Mark tells us this detail. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in, true, true, uh, torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks split open. And unique to Matthew is verse 52. And the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. And the centurion, verse 54 and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became very frightened and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Did you notice all of these, for lack of a better description, reactions to Jesus dying spiritually? For us, I mean, the veil in the temple split in two. The veil was that, that, that wall made of fabric, very thick, heavy fabric, but that wall that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement to, to smear some blood on top of that chest that contained the Ten Commandments that was representative of God's holiness. 
No one could ever go in that place without blood, and they were only invited in there once a year to do this, this act of, of a atonement on the Day of Atonement. And yet here, because of Jesus Christ's death, because Jesus Christ had spiritually died, God split that veil, and he didn't split it from bottom to top. No, symbolically, he split it from the top to the bottom. It was God tore open the entry into his holy of holies. That's what Jesus accomplished by dying spiritually for you, by dying spiritually for me. And then you know what? I really love this next one about the graves opening and these people coming to life. Matthew's the only one that tells us that. Why didn't Mark tell us? Why didn't Luke tell us? Why didn't John tell us? Why was it that John, or that Mark, Matthew was the only one that told us about that? I think maybe the Holy Spirit reserved Mark and Luke and John from telling about that because it fits so importantly into what Matthew was telling us. The resurrection is what provides entry into the holy city. The resurrection is what provides entry. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is what provides entry into the holy city, into the kingdom. You see, this was plan A because the only way into the kingdom was through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, just to skip here a little bit ahead, this is really what Matthew is saying. He's saying Jesus' rejection is what provides our entrance. When Jesus was so totally rejected by God, he was providing the way, the ticket, the entree, into the kingdom of God. For you, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, you are here as a citizen of the kingdom. Yeah, the, the, the kingdom's still off. I mean, there, there's a form of it now, but, but it, you know, all the other stuff is still coming. He's going to come again and put that kingdom into, into place. But you and I, we're not citizens here. We're citizens there. And I think Matthew was, was putting a huge spotlight on it. He didn't say, oh, the tombs were open and they just went into Jerusalem. Go back and look at it. What does he call it? He doesn't call it Jerusalem or they came back into town. He says they went into the holy city. I mean, what is one of the elements that is in Revelation 21? It's this holy city of God. It's the kingdom. You're in the kingdom of Christ because of what Jesus Christ did for you. Not your good works, not your good looks, not your money but because of what Jesus Christ did for you. Our citizenship, it's not here. Philippians 2, 3, 20. 
Our citizenship is in heaven. And Jesus Christ died on the cross. What he accomplished for us on that Friday, and he accomplished it all that Friday. Because what was the last thing he said? It's finished. It's done. The resurrection was just the, the indication from God that, yeah, I accepted it. I've accepted his physical payment, and I gave him back life. And I've accepted his spiritual payment, and 40 days later, I've received him back into heaven. God accepted the payment for your entrance. His rejection provided us with that acceptance. You know, you don't want to begin a week like this just any old way. You want to begin a week like this thinking about what Jesus accomplished for you. And what Jesus accomplished for you was he gave you new life and a new passport entrance into his realm you're here serving him working the system but your citizenship is with him you're in the holy city just like those first fruits of the resurrection are you living that way are you thinking that way? It's so easy to get, get caught in the muck of the here and now. But Jesus Christ calls us into that relationship with him and says, here it is. Remember when Jesus explained what life was like in the kingdom way back in his Sermon on the Mount? What was his very first line? Blessed are the poor in spirit because they inherit what? The kingdom of God. Have you become poor in spirit where you're at the end of yourself and you realize it's nothing that I've got, it's everything that Christ did for me? This week, as we start focusing on what Jesus did for us, and all that he accomplished. We need to leave as people who, who are poor in spirit. Not impressed with ourselves. But thoroughly impressed with the God who saved us. And his son that came and died for us. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just the opportunity to walk through the cross again to see how brutal it was how awful it was how much suffering Christ endured on our behalf most of our father I pray that you would help us to fully grasp this sacrifice that he made for us we, we can't even begin to imagine what it was like for him to be forsaken by you to endure that spiritual death for us. 
I thank you, Father, that because of uh, what Christ did and, and uh, through grace and faith, we experience that resurrected life. And so, Father, I pray that this week our hearts and minds would truly be uh, right with Christ and what he did for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.